It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Previously on The Book of Gates. At sunset, the sun god Ra travelled below the western horizon. In his great bark, or barge, Ra left our world, the world of the living. He entered the world of the dead, called the Duat. Ra was not alone. On his boat, he was accompanied by two deities, or two attributes. These were Heka, magic, and Sia, divine perception. Together with these attributes, Ra would journey through the twelve hours of the night. We explored the first five hours, and a special interlude, the Great Hall of Osiris. Ra came face to face with the King of the Dead, and he witnessed the judgment of the souls. Those who had acted properly in life received their blessings in the Duat. Those who had not received their punishments. Ra's journey was fraught with dangers, and he was frequently threatened by the great devourer, Apep or Apophis. He also had to deal with Seth, the trickster, chaotic god, who had once murdered Osiris long, long ago. Fortunately, these dangers were overcome, albeit temporarily in some cases. Ra emerged from the Hall of Osiris, safe and sound, and fully rested, ready for the next phase of his journey. Now, the second half could begin. Ra left the Hall of Osiris and carried on into the next hour of the night. This was hour number six. Hour six is a pivotal moment for Ra's journey. Here, exactly halfway through the night, the sun god would undergo a powerful ritual, and he would do something quite interesting. In this hour, Ra came face to face with his own corpse. As Ra's boat, the solar bark, enters the sixth hour, he meets with twelve gods. They are males, with long hair and beards and they wear an interesting outfit. The gods have kilts, short skirts down to their knees, but on top, they seem to wear shawls. The gods appear wrapped in cloth, kind of like a poncho. The outfits vary in colour, from white to yellow to dark red, and the cloth seems to constrict their hands and arms. In fact, we can't even see the gods' arms, or what they are holding. The reason for that is simple, but complicated. The twelve gods, wrapped in linen, are carrying Ra's corpse. In the depths of the underworld, the sun god's body itself must be energized. This body is called Shitau, which translates as the mystery. It is not clear if that is the literal name of the corpse, or if it's just a way to obscure the actual name. But these twelve gods have no arms or hands, because they are hidden 
by the invisible corpse of Ra. That may sound strange. Why reference any of this if you're not going to show it? Well, the hieroglyphs convey the essential information, and the deceased pharaoh would understand what was happening. But in ancient Egyptian thought, words and images had their own power or magic. So something as important as the corpse of Ra, that needed to be protected, hidden from direct view. The artists do not show the body, they merely show its effects. The twelve deities who carry this mystery corpse are partially obscured by it, but the body itself remains safely hidden. The hieroglyphs explain the gap between art and reality. Quote, the twelve gods are those with hidden arm who carry the mystery, the sun god's corpse. They carry the mystery of the great god, which those in the underworld cannot see. But the dead, the deceased, they can see the mystery when they come to the Ben-Ben house, near the place where the corpse of this god is. End quote. Essentially, the living cannot see Ra's corpse because the artists have not drawn it. And minor deities, or dangerous beings within the Duat, also cannot see it. Only the blessed dead, the ones who acted properly in life and gained entrance to the Duat, they can see the corpse. The do-gooders are rewarded with a glimpse of Ra's fundamental nature. And when they come to a place called the Ben-Ben house, they can see that corpse. The Ben-Ben is a reference to creation. When the universe was forming, the first piece of land or matter was called Ben-Ben. In ancient Egypt, the Ben-Ben itself appeared at the top of obelisks and the peaks of pyramids. So as long as the dead souls visit a necropolis or a temple, they will see the corpse of Ra. The idea seems to be a link between the world of the living with its physical monuments and the world of eternity with its places of mystery and power. The gods carry the invisible corpse of Ra, and the sun god speaks to these deities as they do so. Quote, Ra says to the twelve carriers, Receive my image, embrace your mysteries, so that you may rest in the Ben-Ben house, at the place in which my corpse lies. That which is in me, my essence, is a mystery, and your arm conceals it. End quote. The twelve gods participate in a key ritual. They are concealing or protecting the mystery of Ra, the very essence of his power. Doing this, the gods keep Ra safe from his enemies, like the great devourer, Apophis. For if Apophis, or any threat, cannot see the corpse of Ra, they cannot consume it. So the twelve deities are not just porters carrying a body, they are helping Ra to journey safely past the dangers. The next caption explains this part. The twelve gods speak to Ra, and they say, quote, Your Ba, soul, belongs to the sky, O foremost of the horizon, Ra. It is your shadow that crosses the mysterious place. Your corpse belongs on the earth, even though you are in the sky. We restore Ra to the sky, since you are separated from the earth and your corpse. You, Ra, 
breathe when you rest in your corpse, which lies in the duat. End quote. I had to edit and adapt this passage to make it a bit clearer, but the gist is that Ra's corpse, his mystery, remains on Earth and within the Duat. But of course, Ra is a sky god, crossing the heavens by day and shining on the Earth. These deities protect the corpse of Ra, while the sun god is crossing the daytime sky. And when Ra comes to the sixth hour of the night, they help him to reunite with his body. Why is this happening? Why is Ra's corpse in the underworld at all? Why does he even have a corpse? Why did the Egyptians create such a convoluted story here? Earlier, I touched on some of the literal and metaphorical explanations within the Book of Gates. For one thing, the text outlines the reasons why every night the sun disappears, why it seems to go out in the west and then reappear at dawn in the east. The Egyptians did not know why this happened, so they seem to have treated it as a story of life, death, and renewal, which makes sense in its own logic. The idea of Ra having a corpse and coming to meet with it every night kind of ties everything together. If the sun god sailed across the sky and the Duat, he would remain essentially distant. But the Egyptians understood that sunlight and heat were powerful forces on the earth. Light brought life to the fields, the flowers, the animals, and humans. So the ancients viewed nature as fundamentally connected. Everything affected everything else. That was especially true of the sun. So while it may seem strange for Ra to have a corpse at all, it was a powerful metaphor. It brought Ra to earth, literally. It made him more accessible in certain ways. And it explained that mysterious power of the sunlight to encourage growth and life. Ra has a corpse so that he is connected to this world, both the living world and the underworld. He does not simply hang out in the sky, he unites with the earth, and everyone benefits. The rest of Hour 6 connects Ra's mystery to life and to death. In one scene, we find the great serpent Apep, or Apophis, coming forth. Apophis appears as a snake, carried by gods. From his body, human heads poke up. These are the beings whom Apophis has already devoured. But the great enemy is restrained. Gods carry his serpentine form. And behind this procession, a sort of bodyguard appears. These deities carry forked sticks, the sort you might use to trap a snake on the ground. And when Ra approaches, his power and the bodyguards force Apophis to spit up those he has devoured. Essentially, Apophis comes forth once again as a deadly threat, but the gods are prepared and they restrain him. And Ra, mighty and splendid, undoes the damage he has caused. In another scene, we find a group of mummies. They lie on beds, guarded by a snake, a nice snake, called Nehep. These mummies are the followers of Osiris, the sleeping ones, who are in a state of weariness. In other words, they are the recently deceased. They lie sleeping, waiting for their resurrection or awakening in the Duat. That awakening comes when Ra 
full of new light and energy, shines upon the mummies. The hieroglyphs give a wonderful description of their rising to new life. Quote, O ones who are in the Duat, the followers of Osiris, the sleeping ones who are in a state of weariness, the god Duati, a form of Ra, speaks to them, saying, O gods in the Duat, followers of the ruler of the West, Osiris, who are stretched out on their side, lying on their beds, may your flesh rise up, may your bones come together, may you embrace your limbs, may your flesh be united. Sweet breath will come to your noses, your mummy wrappings will loosen, your headdresses or headcloths will uncover, and light will come to your eyes, so that you may see the light through them. Raise yourself from your weariness to receive your fields, the estates that belong to you, and the water that belongs to you, who are content with Ra. For these deceased, their refreshment is water. The serpent Nehep is guarding their corpses, but their souls, their bars, they move to the field of reeds to take hold of their refreshment. Their offering is bread, their beer is sacred, their refreshment is water. Whoever makes an offering to the deceased on earth, that person will become a mummy on his bed. End quote. That speech summarizes the core message of the Book of Gates. The light of Ra shines upon the deceased and awakens them to new life. They rise from their beds or coffins, shake off their mummy wrappings, and go forth. They receive farmland to till and offerings to sustain their energies. And for the living, the promise is made clear. Anyone who gives prayers and offerings to the dead, to the gods, will receive this treatment in eternity. It is a simple message, simply conveyed, but it captures the essence of the Egyptian duat. Live properly on earth, look after those who have died, and you too will enjoy eternity in the fields. Ra carries on, and he comes to the sixth gate. This gate is called the Artifact of its Lord, or Chemut Nebes. She is guarded by serpents and mummies who protect the doors. Ra, on his boat, sails up to the gate. His two assistants, Magic and Perception, speak to the guardians. The doors open. The solar barge sails through. The doors close behind. And those left in hour six cry out as the sun carries on. That was a long chapter, but it needed to be. Hour six is one of the most important sections of the Book of Gates. Along with the Judgment Hall of Osiris and hour five, it forms the core of the overall book. Having completed this section, we are now beginning to rise back towards the dawn. The story is going to pick up pace. The next few hours will be shorter, much lighter. And as we get closer to the dawn, we begin to see the climax of the action. The god Apophis is restrained here and there, but he's still a threat. And as we will see, he has many dangers left to offer. In fact, it's about to turn into a war. After the break, Ra begins to ascend towards the eastern horizon and his rebirth. It's a difficult journey, with a great conflict gathering force. That is after the break. See you in a moment.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Ra leaves the sixth hour. At this point, he has passed the halfway mark of his journey. He has gone through the deepest, darkest region of the Duat. Now, he is beginning his ascent. From hours 7 to 12, Ra is now moving towards the eastern horizon. That does not mean things get easier. In fact, Ra is going to face some great dangers. Let's explore. Hour 7 is concerned with offerings and supplies. We see deities carrying baskets full of goods and long stalks of grain. Again, these gods are the do-gooders, the people who acted properly on earth, made the right offerings, and received their rewards in eternity. These do-gooders help to gather the supplies that will feed and nourish the blessed souls. And Osiris himself watches these people, and he promises them eternal supplies and nourishment. We also find a scene of punishment. Tall poles, or stakes, appear in hour seven. The poles have heads shaped like jackals, and against each stake, a pair of captives stand bound and tied. The prisoners have various names, like the enemies of Ra, the violent one, and the enemies of Osiris. These rebels, or traitors, receive their punishments. They are bound, tied to the poles, and executed. A guardian deity, Atum, speaks to the poles themselves, the stakes which hold these prisoners. Atum commands the stakes to, quote, Guard the enemies. Grasp those who will be punished. Their reckoning is beheading. Ra has issued a decree against them, and he commands their slaughter. End quote. This reminds us that the Egyptian underworld was not just a place of happiness and eternal glory. It could also be incredibly violent. The wrongdoers receive brutal punishment. They are bound and beheaded. This is the flip side of divine justice, the darker side of Ma'at. The rest of Hour 7 is concerned with the offerings, Gods appear with sickles to harvest the fields and the crops. They carry the supplies so that everyone will receive their nourishment. It is a pretty little scene overall. Just don't mind the bloodshed in the corner. Now, Ra comes to the seventh gate. This one is called She Who Shines, or Peschit. Again, the gate is protected by serpents and mummies. These mummies have curious names. One is called the Deficient One, or maybe the one whose eye is damaged. The other is called the Blind One. I'm not clear on the significance of these specific names. Perhaps this deep into the night, the Guardians are in darkness more often than not. But the later hours don't have quite such negative names, so maybe these two are just unlucky. Blinded, 
damaged, they stand before gate 7. Of course, Ra's beautiful light is warm, and they recognise his presence. As the sun god approaches, Ra's two assistants, magic and perception, command the deities to open the gate. The doors swing wide, and the solar barge passes through. As he crosses the threshold, the doors close again. Those left behind wail and lament. The seventh hour ends, and the eighth begins. Again, this hour is concerned with offerings and provisions. I won't spend too long here. We see deities carrying ropes that have some connection to Ra's mystery, or corpse. The hieroglyphs talk about these ropes uncurling and progressing, and as they do, Ra's light shines forth, and his mysteries become powerful. It's an obscure reference, but the rope seems to represent aspects of time. We saw time referenced in the first few hours, when the Book of Gates depicts images of time undergoing renewal and rebirth. The idea repeats itself here, in a new form. In hour 8, the gods are uncoiling a great rope. Apparently, that represents the progress of time. We also find a scene with mummies. These mummies lie on their beds, just like the sixth hour. But this time, the mummies have changed. They are no longer inert, silent and immobile. Instead, these mummies are in the process of rising. They are shedding their wrappings and shrouds, which appear like mounds of cloth on the beds. The mummies are lifting their heads up, and as they do, they almost look like sphinxes. The mounds of cloth with the heads poking up bear a passing resemblance to sphinx statues. That might be a coincidence, but it might connect with the idea of sphinxes as a symbol of Ra and the new dawn. As the sun god shines his light upon the mummies, they awaken and rise. As they do so, they briefly resemble the sphinx. It's a cool image. Ra comes to the eighth pylon or gate. This gate is called the Glowing One, or Bechechi. Her guardians are snakes and mummies. The mummies are called the Round One and He Who Embraces. They sound nice, like a big huggable Santa figure. Naturally, the guardians bow as Ra approaches. And when Ra's assistants, magic and perception, give the order, the guardians open the gate. The doors swing wide. Ra passes through. Those left behind wail as the great doors shut. Ra comes to the ninth hour. This chapter is unique within the Book of Gates. Most of the scene is taken up with a lake. A vast pool opens up before Ra. The waters, which appear like zigzag lines, contain the dark shapes of bodies. Human figures lie within the pool, and the hieroglyphs label them as the ones who are immersed or submerged, the ones who are capsized or shipwrecked, the swimming ones, and the stretched out ones. This image conveys a great fear of the Egyptians. Since they lived in a river-based society, and transport was mostly by boat, 
the threat of drowning was great. A reed boat might capsize, a barge might collide with rocks or another ship, a hippopotamus or crocodile might attack. Sailing on the Nile brought great danger. The chances of drowning or accidents were a common occurrence, and likely a very common way to die. The problem with drowning was the destruction or loss it brought to the body. At the very least, it would be hard to recover those who had drowned in the Nile. Their bodies would sink to the bottom, beyond the reach of even the strongest swimmers. On top of that, there was always the threat of the crocodiles and the hippos. So if you sank into the Nile or the sea, your body was probably lost. The ancient anxiety around this is quite understandable. Throughout the Book of Gates, we have seen references to the mummies or the bodies of the deceased. But if your body was lost, not preserved, how could you access the Duat? How could you ensure your security and eternal life? You can imagine the fear, that deep, animal fear, of anyone who witnessed or experienced this kind of loss. Fortunately, Ra takes care of everyone, even those who have drowned. As his barge sails past this lake and those who lie within it, the hieroglyphs offer hope. They say, quote, O you who float, who are in the water, look upon Ra who passes by. Ra cares for the gods, and he provides for the spirits. Stand up, you weary ones, Behold, Ra cares for you. Ra says to the drowned, You who are submerged, your heads will rise. You who have capsized or shipwrecked, I give rowing for your arms. You who are swimming, I give speed for your movement. You who are spread out, I give breath for your noses. May you have power over your water. May you be content with your refreshment. Your souls, which are upon the earth, are satisfied. They are not destroyed. End quote. Ra offers assistance to the drowned. So, he gives hope to the living. I find this passage quite evocative. Even if somebody perishes in the Nile or the sea, the sun god will still reach them. The light sparkling on the water will rescue the souls of those who have gone under. And in the Duat, Ra will give these people the energy to escape from their watery prison, to rise up from the river or the sea, and to reach the next world. It is a kind gesture, and possibly a great relief to a deep-seated fear. Ra saves the drowned, and he sails his barge through the ninth hour. Soon, he comes to its gate. The ninth gate is called Great of Authority, Art Shefshefet. It is guarded by serpents and also by mummies. The mummies are named one who encloses the earth and one who carries the earth. So either they're talking about earth, like soil, or these mummies are incredibly large and incredibly strong. Take your pick. The mummies and serpents open the door as Ra's boat approaches. The sun god and his friends sail through. The gate swings shut, and those left behind wail as the solar barge passes. 
As the tenth hour begins, Ra is coming closer to the dawn. But as he does, the danger also increases. Moving forward, the great serpent Apep, or Apophis, will appear more often. And now, the gods must battle against Apep to protect Ra's journey. This battle rages over the next few hours. We are now entering the third act, so to speak. The fight is on. Ra enters hour 10. Immediately, he is confronted by a sphinx. A sphinx with two heads. In the centre of one scene, we find an animal with a lion's body. It also has a falcon's head in the front, and a human head in the rear. The two heads are crowned with the white crown, the one that's shaped like a bowling pin. On the back of the sphinx, a human-shaped deity stands between the two heads. Strangely, this mini-deity also has two heads. On the small figure, we find the heads of Horus and Seth together. One god faces left, one god faces right. The two-headed deity is called the one with double faces, or two-face. He is part of the Sphinx, a manifestation of that animal's power. On either side of this curious image, a battle is beginning. We see two groups of deities, each clutching ropes. They have attached their ropes to poles or totems, and they haul on the ropes to raise those poles high. The gods are called the Southerners and the Northerners, a tidy division between the two populations of Egypt. The gods pull their ropes to raise the stakes. The significance here is a bit unclear, but it may have something to do with the other scenes unfolding in this hour. You see, while Ra approaches the Sphinx and the rope pullers, other deities are going to war. Most of hour 10 is dedicated to a fight. An army of gods comes forth, clutching spears and nets. There are deities with human shapes, and deities with monkey shapes. Together, these warriors face off with a serpent. The great coiled form of Apep, Apophis, rises up against this army. In this scene, Apep is free, unrestrained. And so, he poses a direct threat to the sun god. Apophis, Apep, lunges forth, but the warrior deities charge into the fray. The hieroglyphs convey their resolve and their inevitable victory. Quote, The warriors are like this, carrying their spears. They guard the tow rope of Ra's boat, and they prevent the serpent, Apep, from approaching the boat of the great god. They follow Ra in the sky. These are the gods who fight on his behalf within Nut, the sky. The tow rope is in their hand, and it is fastened to the foot of Kepri, Ra in the dawn. It is these gods who drag Ra into the sky, and they say, Ra comes behind his manifestation, he emerges to the sky. To the sky, great one! Hail, we place you upon your throne, by means of the tow rope that is in our hands. End quote. The warrior deities face off against Apep, doing battle with the serpent. As they do so, other deities haul on the ropes to carry Ra's boat through the hour. With their help, Ra is ascending towards the dawn, 
where he will appear in his morning manifestation, Kepri. So it is a moment of great danger, but Ra is not alone. His army is fighting the dragon. Of course, the fight is not over. Not yet. In fact, the war against Arpep will continue over the next hours. And it will escalate as Arpep brings forth his own army to battle against Ra. The rest of the hour touches on obscure religious ideas. They would take a long time to unpack. But long story short, as Ra is approaching the dawn, his light is bringing new energy to all the deities. Even gods like Horus, Lord of the Sky, King of Humanity, and Seth, the great storm god, even they are strengthened with Ra's warmth. So as the dawn approaches, and Ra's rebirth draws nearer, everyone stands to benefit. Ra traverses the tenth hour, and his army faces off with Apep. As they battle, Ra's boat carries on to the tenth gate. This gate is named Jeserit, or Joserit, which means the sacred one. Joserit is guarded by snakes and mummies, the latter of whom are called the Roaring One and the One Who Uncovers. It's not clear what he uncovers exactly. Maybe he removes the shrouds or wrappings to free the dead from their coffins. Or maybe he uncovers himself like an exotic dancer. Either way, Ra approaches the gate like a celestial Elvis. The gods are literally disrobing before the king. The doors open, the solar barge passes. Ra has left the building. As the tenth hour ends, Ra's journey is beginning to reach its climax. The great enemy is free, unrestrained, and a battle has begun to rage. After the break, we will explore the final phase of the Book of Gates, as he enters the 11th and 12th hours, Ra will come to the very limits of the Duat. But before he can achieve his great victory, he must overcome his enemy. Will he succeed? We'll find out in a moment. Hour 11 begins. The penultimate hour of the Sun God's journey, and as Ra enters this chapter, the battle against Apep continues to rage. In fact, it is expanding. Apep, Apophis, is no longer alone. He has brought some buddies to assist him. As the army of Ra faces off against Apep, more serpents enter the fray. There are four of them. The leader is named the Roasting Flame, Wamimti. And the other three are the ones born of weakness, Mesu Bedshet. So Apep's forces are growing. The danger is closer than ever before. What's worse, the ancient authors throw a complication at Ra. Apparently, the sun god's boat runs aground in this hour. Having enjoyed smooth sailing so far, the great barge is temporarily disabled. This is a dangerous moment for the boat runs aground near to Arpep and his allies. Fortunately, Ra is not alone. While Arpep has four assistants, so does Ra. The snakes come forth, but now new gods enter the fray. Four of them, one for each serpent. These are Hapi, Imseti, 
Dua Mutef and Kebe Senewef. You may recognize these names as the four sons of Horus. These deities often appear on canopic jars. They protect the viscera, or organs, of mummified humans. The sons of Horus are a popular feature of underworld art. They appear on coffins, sarcophagi, shrines, and the walls of tombs. Well, they're not just pretty faces or jars. They are powerful deities in their own right. The four sons each climb atop one of the four serpents, Apep's allies. They restrain these snakes, holding them down and subduing them with ropes. Other gods come into the fray to help, but the four sons often appear as the main warriors. So Apep brings new friends, but so does Ra, and the battle inevitably turns against the serpent. In the rest of this scene, long processions of deities come forth. They swarm around Apep, tying him down with ropes. There is quite a collection of them. The first god is a woman, Selket, or Serket, the scorpion goddess who often protects the dead. Selket restrains Apep, and in some versions, she even climbs on top of the great dragon, bringing him down herself. Selket is followed by her troops. These are gods with knives and ropes named the Binders or the Fetterers, Intiu. There are gods who have serpents for heads, four serpents each to be precise. They are called Henchiu, the Slaughterers, which sounds wicked. Another group are called Necheryu Jajiu, the gods who cut throats. And there is a curious deity who takes the form of a giant fist. In the middle of this scene, emerging from the ground, a huge hand reaches up to grasp the rope which binds Apep down. This fist is called One with the Hidden Body. So I guess there's more to him, we just can't see it. The point is, this deity comes forth to fist the enemies of Ra. In the midst of this hour, we see an interesting feature. A group of deities come forth representing the stars. Twelve gods, carrying boat oars, gather in one section of the hour. They are called the gods who do not know perishing, aka the imperishable ones. This is a reference to the stars that circle around the North Pole. These circumpolar stars do not set or rise, they remain visible always above the horizon. For the Egyptians, the circumpolar stars were an important symbol of immortality, and we have references to these deities going all the way back to the pyramid texts. They were meaningful symbols, which makes sense. After all, if those stars never vanish below the horizon, they never die, so to speak. So those deities, or stars, were closely linked with the concept of eternal life. We also find groups of deities that represent the hours. Twelve goddesses, with stars above their heads, carry a rope to pull the boat of Ra. This is a reference to the twelve hours of night, and we actually saw these goddesses earlier. Back in hour four, the twelve hour goddesses showed up in the process of their own death and rebirth. Well, here they are again, fully formed, helping Ra on his journey. It's a nice callback, bringing the group full circle. Anyway, the hour goddesses and the circumpolar stars appear to support Ra. 
but they are just a sideshow. The real action is still underway. Let's get back to the battle. The fight goes on. Various gods are in the fray, swarming around Apep and his allies. Fortunately, Ra's ship, which had been stopped, now gets going once again. Assisted by the hour goddesses, who pull the tow rope, the solar bark lifts off and resumes sailing. As it does, the army of Ra calls out to their lord. Quote, they, the warrior deities, raise themselves up for Ra when he appears and approaches them. They say to Ra, Shine forth, be powerful, dual horizon. Behold, we have overthrown Apep, who is bound in ropes. You do not approach your enemy, O Ra, and your enemy does not approach you. Your safety is established, while Apep is smashed in his own blood. He is punished, while Ra stops at the hour of rest. The serpent is like this. It is Selket who puts on his ropes. Knives are planted into the one who is terrible of face. Apep is restrained. End quote. The battle ends. Ra's warriors are victorious. Selket, the scorpion, ties Apep up into a bundle, and the army lets out a shout of their victory. The four sons of Horus subdue the four allies of Apep. The conquest is achieved, although Ra and his servants are not quite finished with the snake. The enemy is defeated and restrained, but he must be punished. That will happen in the next hour. Hour number 11 is the final culmination of the struggle. The danger reaches its peak as Apep almost attacks Ra directly. Only with great energy, violence, and bloodshed can they subdue this enemy. But they must do so now, before Ra reaches the dawn. If peace is not restored before the nighttime ends, Apep will rage unbound throughout the Duat. So Ra's enemy must defeat him before he reaches the end. It is, literally, the eleventh hour. The Great Barge passes the battlefield and approaches the eleventh gate. If Apep was thinking of attacking that gate, he would be sorely mistaken. The pylon rears up, guarded by serpents and mummies. The mummies are called He Who Cuts Down and The Violent One, just the absolute tough guy units of the security detail. The gate itself bears the name One with Mysterious Initiations, or Mysterious Inductions. Basically, it's a gate that only opens for those accepted or initiated into the religious cults. Those with special knowledge of the gods and the rituals are the ones who may pass this gate. Of course, Ra and the pharaoh know all of those mysteries, so the gate opens at Ra's approach. And those left behind wail as the doors swing shut. At last, Ra enters the final hour, the final chapter of his journey on the way to rebirth. We are close to the surface, close to the living world, and as a result, 
we start to see gods representing earthly phenomena. As Ra's boat enters the twelfth hour, we see a group of deities holding up discs. The discs kind of look like basketballs, but they represent the sun in its daytime appearance. These gods are going to facilitate Ra's reunion with his earthly form. Hieroglyphs describe these gods. Quote, they carry the sun disc of Ra, Aten-en-Ra'u. It is they who unite the Duat with the sky. They do this by means of the disc that is in their hand, and they guard the gate of the land of the dead, until Ra goes to his rest in the womb of Nut. End quote. The deities carrying the sun discs are guardians. They will use these symbols to unite Ra in the Duat with his daytime, earthly form. And they protect this final hour as Ra prepares to be reborn. Ra is not just going to pop out of the horizon. He will emerge from the womb of the sky goddess. Nut, the Milky Way, stretches her body from west to east. In the dawn, Ra will emerge from her birth canal. So everyone is getting ready for Ra's re-emergence. But he doesn't do it alone. Deities will assist. We also find gods carrying stars. These deities carry the sparkling lights that brighten the sky by night. Of course, some stars also linger into the dawn, glittering while the sun rises over the horizon. These gods also facilitate the transition, as the stars vanish or appear with the movements of Ra on Earth. There are other deities as well, more abstract gods. There is a group of males carrying staffs, who are the ones who establish portions for Ra. They seem to mark out the movements of the god through the sky, and also the offerings he will receive. There are deities with ram heads, who are the ones who nourish the gods who are in the sky with offerings. Deities with falcon heads come forth. They are the ones who established the shine or sunlight, who give a hand to the boat crew which is in the two boats of Ra. They cause the boat's navigation in the sky. So the falcons facilitate the movement of Ra's barge or bark through the daytime sphere. Finally, there are goddesses. Eight women seated on thrones made of snakes, hold stars in their hands. These goddesses are the morning stars, four for the west, four for the east. They praise Ra, quote, After he has gone forth, the child who goes forth in his manifestations, Kepru. It is these goddesses who conduct the rowing of the boat crew in the bark of Ra. They attend to Ra when he comes to this gate. End quote. So as Ra approaches the end of the twelfth hour and the beginning of dawn, he is guarded and aided by various deities. Before Ra completes his journey, there is the lingering question of Apep. The great serpent was defeated in the eleventh hour battle. Now he must be punished. We see the enemy in a pitiful state. The serpent is chained to the ground, held down while gods come before him. A group of deities, some human-shaped and others with jackal heads, approach Arpep. They carry long crooks, like a shepherd's staff, and they hold forth knives. These gods are called the Divine Council that punishes Apophis, 
Quote, Their staffs are in their hand, and they receive their knives so that they may punish Arpep. It is they who execute his slaughter and cause damage to him. The ropes of this rebel, Arpep, are in the hands of the children of Horus. The children of Horus grasp Arpep when they are in the sky. They put on his bindings or fetters. End quote. Arpep is bound, tied to the ground, and the gods bring forth blades against him. The great enemy receives his punishment for threatening Ra and creation. Doing that, the way is clear for the sun god to leave the Duat. The underworld is safe, danger is repelled and restrained. Everyone can rest when the great god leaves. It is time for Ra's rebirth. The sun god enters the final phase of his journey. Here, multiple deities gather to witness and support his departure. A group of baboons appear, carrying hieroglyphs in the shape of human fists. The primates are here to praise the sun god. Quote, it is they who proclaim Ra in the eastern horizon of the sky. They announce this god with their hands. End quote. The baboons praise Ra in the dawn. Apparently, they use their hands to greet the deity when he rises from the east. That may sound strange, but it does have a scientific basis. Many animal species respond to the dawn in a specific way. As the sun rises, these animals will bask in the light, warming themselves after a cold night. Baboons are one of the species in which this behavior is recorded. And primates, specifically, will often raise their hands to warm them in the sun. For the ancient Egyptians observing this behavior, it may have seemed like the animals were greeting the dawn. And in a way, they are. So baboons have a prominent place in the worship and symbolism of Ra. As the sun god approaches his rebirth and the dawn, these baboons are ready to raise their hands and praise him. Next we see two goddesses, human women wearing crowns, appear in front of the baboons. The two ladies each wear a crown associated with the south and north of Egypt, the white and red crowns respectively. One goddess is called Imentet, or She of the West. Imentet wears the white crown. The other goddess is named Zait, or She of Sais, a town in the far north. Zayet wears the red crown. These goddesses are also here to witness the birth of Ra, but Imentet and Zayet will not leave the underworld. The hieroglyphs specifically say, quote, the goddesses turn back at this gate. So they will witness the dawn, but they will not emerge from the Duat. Imentet, the western lady, and Zayet, Sayus, must stay behind. So the twelfth hour has a lot of gods, a nice party welcoming Ra and ready to see him off. We are almost at the end of the group, but there are just a few more deities I want to mention. First, we have some human males who are bent and stooped. They are the Old Ones, Ialtiu. These old folks are called the doorkeepers of the mysterious place. They remain in this location, guarding the gate which Ra is approaching. Then, we see a god with a cat's head. This deity is called Miuti, the cat-like one. Miuti 
is also a doorkeeper who remains at his place and guards the final gate. Imagine a house cat sitting on the doorstep and refusing to move. You get the idea. I like Miyuti a lot. Gate number 12 is the last barrier of the duat. It looms up in formidable size. The panels of this door are gold like the dawn. Long serpents guard the door leaves. Again, the gate has a name. The One of Sacred Power, Jesseret Bau. She has guardians in the form of snakes and mummies. The mummies are called the Destroyer and the One Who is in the Half-Light, the light just before sunrise. There are also two poles or totems in front of this gate. The totems rise up tall and strong, and they have human heads at the top. The totems have names. One is Kepri, or Ra at the dawn. The other is Atum, the one who is complete. These great gods, Kepri and Atum, manifest as these totems to guard the final door, and they come to bear witness to Ra's passing and rebirth. Kepri and Atum are both heavily associated with Ra in ancient Egyptian religion. Kepri is the beetle, and Ra often appears as Kepri in artistic scenes. Atum, meanwhile, is one of the great creator gods, and in temples he is often connected directly with Ra. So as the final moment approaches, two of the most important deities are here to witness, protect, and participate in the rebirth to come. The solar bark approaches gate number 12. On the boat, Ra's two assistants, Heka, or magic, and Sia, perception, utter their final commands. Sia calls out to the gate, Open your door for Ra. Unlock your door for the horizon dweller, Aketi. He, Ra, has gone forth from the Duat, so that he may rest in the womb of Nut, the sky goddess. At Sia's command, the vast gate, she of sacred power, opens wide. Ra, on his boat, passes out of the underworld, entering the sky of our world. His rebirth is here. The gate swings shut behind, and those left in the underworld now find darkness, or night, descending on their lands. The Duat dwellers cry out, wailing, as their day ends, and the earthly day begins. The journey is complete. Ra is victorious. Ra emerges into the dawn. He has passed safely through the Duat and its many dangers. With magic, perception, and the help of some friends, he has done what the Eternal Ruler should. He has banished chaos and threats in the form of Apep or Seth. He has rewarded those who acted properly in life, blessing the do-gooders with offerings, drinks, and farms to live their lives. He has punished those who acted improperly, destroying the wrongdoers with great violence and fury. Ra has organized the Duat, measuring out its fields, giving each soul and deity their proper place in the underworld. Thus, Ra and his allies have fulfilled his duties, the duties of a pharaoh. 
he has maintained order, organised nature, and repelled chaos. The Duat, and thus the earthly world, are in harmony and balance. All is well in creation. As Ra departs the underworld, the artists finish with a beautiful tableau. A final scene, a sort of epilogue, completes the Book of Gates. In this image, we see a vast lake filled with water. It stands like a vertical rectangle, short on the bottom, long on the sides. At the bottom of this lake, a human male rises up, his arms outstretched. This is a god, the god Noon, aka the infinite ocean from which all life and reality emerges. Noon comes forth, raising his arms, and he lifts up the boat of Ra. The solar bark appears in the middle of the scene. Now it is full of deities, including famous beings like Isis and Nephthys, the sisters of Osiris. We also find Shu, the god of air and light, Geb, the lord of the earth, Heka, magic, and Sia, perception, among other deities. In the centre of the bark, the sun god Ra appears. He has shed his human form, and now appears as the beetle. This beetle is Kepri, which literally means to appear, or to manifest. Kepri is Ra at the moment of sunrise, and we see this in the art. The beetle rises above the bark, and in his two forelegs, or mandibles, we see a huge sun disk. The beetle lifts the sun up so that it crests the horizon and brings light to the earth. The dawn has come. Above the beetle and the sun disk, we see the sky. A goddess appears near the top of the scene. She is upside down, reaching out to the sun disk as Kepri raises it. The goddess is Nut, the sky and Milky Way. She takes the sun in her arms so that she may give birth to it and bring forth a new day. But that is not quite the end. Just as Newt reaches out to receive the sun, she in turn is supported by a small figure. Just behind, or below Newt, we find an image of Osiris. But he doesn't appear in his normal form, a human male with crowns and thrones. In this image, Osiris appears as a male whose body stretches out behind him, almost like a snake. Osiris's body curves to encompass a small circular area. In that area, we find hieroglyphs that label this space as the Duat. Osiris encircles the underworld, and the king of the dead, with his land, stand just behind the sky goddess. The image is strange to look at, but it conveys a simple idea. Reality and existence is divided into separate spheres, but those spheres are connected. The three realms, earth, sky, and underworld, are unified. This is conveyed through the overall picture. At the bottom of the scene, the god of the infinite waters, Noon, lifts Ra up so that he may bring the dawn. Above, the sky goddess receives the dawn, helping to start the day on earth. But just behind note, the king of the dead is waiting in his kingdom. The next evening will bring Ra back to the Duat. So the three realms of existence are connected. The underworld links to the earthly world. The earthly world links to the infinite waters. 
the infinite waters link to the underworld. They are separate, but united, linking up in a cosmic cycle. A new day arrives. The cycle of eternity can begin again. And as Ra emerges from the eastern horizon, the sun god is feeling good. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this journey through the Duat and Ra's rebirth. The Book of Gates is a fascinating work, full of strange imagery and obscure references. I wish I could explore it in greater detail to uncover the various metaphors and insights that it offers. Alas, the book is vast, running dozens of pages when translated to English. Hopefully, the future will offer us opportunities to revisit parts of this book. After its first appearance in the royal tomb of Horemheb, the Book of Gates would show up in many royal burials. The pharaoh's tomb chambers, even their sarcophagi, bore scenes and images from this book. So we'll see the Book of Gates again, and maybe there will be chances to dive into smaller scenes or references. For now, we must bid farewell to the Duat, and the land of the dead. My special thanks to Luke Chaos, who produced the musical interludes you heard between each hour. These little pieces are covers of a wonderful album called Demon Days by the band Gorillaz. The Demon Days album released in May 2005. Lyrically and sonically, that album chronicles a journey through the night. I love this album, so I reached out to Luke to see if he could ancientify some little excerpts. The result was, I think, delightful. I hope you have enjoyed the tunes. A special shout out to Catherine, who was the first person to correctly identify the songs. Catherine, you have sharp ears, and surely the sun god will bless you with knowledge of his divine mysteries. The podcast will return in two weeks, when we begin the 19th dynasty. I hope life treats you well in that time, and I will see you soon. Before I go, let me extend my thanks to the priests. Ashley, Martha, Stephen, Niden, Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, and Linda. These are the fine folks who support the show at the priest level tier on patreon.com. With their incredible generosity, we can afford the religious texts like the Book of Gates and they allow me to take the time that I need to really dive into these works and get to grips with some of their more obscure meanings. Personally, I really love exploring these religious texts. I find them strangely inspiring, and they help me reconnect with the world around me. So I look forward to doing more of these in the future. And chances are, we'll get the chance to revisit important works like The Book of the Dead, to explore them with new eyes and greater detail than I was able to do in the past. Point is, thank you very much to the priests, and to all the people who support the show on patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Your kindness is most appreciated. I am in your debt. That's all from me. I'll see you in two weeks. Take care, and may the great sun god bless your days. May he bring sunlight to you, 
to all the animals and to nature, and may you enjoy the blessings of his glorious light. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.